We are doing a live episode of the Cracked Podcast at the London Podcast Festival, and I could not be more excited about it. That show is Sunday, 8th September at 7 p.m. I believe I said the date and time the way you folks say it in England. It's part of an amazing festival, too. You can bundle us with other tickets if you want to see just a whole bunch of shows. Either way, head to bit.ly slash crackedlondon if you want to get tickets, or follow the very convenient food note in this show to get yourself set up with a seat at our first ever podcast outside of the United States at all, and of course, first ever podcast in the UK. See you soon, Britain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also making a point of putting true crime in the title of this podcast episode. Uh, also, the word murder is going to be in the title there if we can fit it, because uh, this episode involves those things, and uh, and some people want as much warning for that as they can, uh, because true crime is a, a thing about real murders. It's a thing that's going on. It's also such a podcasting thing. Uh, I, I feel like it's almost what the whole medium is for, uh, right? Like warning that maybe there's some true crime in a podcast is like warning that a movie might have some action scenes or warning that a pop song might touch upon love. You know, it's very common. And I am so excited about this episode today because we are talking to one of the fundamental true crime people of that genre and one of the best writers about it. His name is Billy Jensen, and he is an investigator as well as a true crime writer and podcaster. You may know him from his appearances on TV, talking about this stuff, or on his podcast appearances on shows like My Favorite Murder. He also has his own podcast that is called Jensen and Holes, The Murder Squad. It is where Billy Jensen, who I'm talking to today, and his co-host, investigator Paul Holes, work together to share stories of true crime and share ways you can help solve crimes that exist by just contributing your efforts and your information if you have any. And another resume thing here for Billy, he is one of the people who helped complete a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is by the author Michelle McNamara, who is an amazing uh, crime writer, who was also known to a lot of comedy people because she was the spouse of comedian Patton Oswalt. She passed away, but her work investigating a single notorious killer who she branded as the Golden State Killer is one of the biggest true crime stories of the last couple years and of just ever. Billy Jensen is here today to share a book of his own. It's called Chase Darkness With Me, How One True Crime Writer Started Solving Murders. One more time, that is Chase Darkness With Me, How One True Crime Writer Started Solving Murders. I think it is so fascinating to talk to a true crime writer who, as his book subtitle says, became someone who helps solve them, because I think that's that's sort of the platonic ideal of that entire genre, and this is the foremost person doing it. He's also here to share many other stories, including a Star Wars-related mystery that he was able to work out. I can't wait for you to hear from him, so please sit back or sit in front of your Facebook news feed, because that's become a surprisingly important crime-solving tool. Facebook news feed, yeah, the thing you feel like is a waste of time. No, it's useful. And either way, here's this episode of The Cracked Podcast with writer, podcaster, investigator, and author Billy Jensen. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. For 
people who don't know you, maybe, uh, what what started your interest in in murders and crimes and that whole world? You know, it started in 1977 in the summer. And think about 1977 in New York. There were so many crazy things that were going on. You had Star Wars. the New York Yankees. You had Star Wars. You yeah. had both disco and punk. You had a blackout. <laughs> And then you had this guy killing people with a 44 caliber gun. And we called him, before he gave himself the name Son of Sam, we called him the 44 caliber killer. That's how he was known in our house. And I remember, it's one of my first memories, and the first time I ever remember actually saying something as a person. My dad came home, he showed me the front page of Newsday, and he said, look at this. And it said, we have him. And it's a picture yeah. of David Berkowitz. And... I remember just feeling this great feeling of like relief because we lived on Long Island, but it was, we were maybe eight miles from the, one of the, uh, the scenes of the murders. And I looked at his face and I said in the vernacular of the day, he looks like a turkey. That's, and that's my <laughs> very first time I remember talking. And now I didn't start from there. It's not like I was like, okay, dad, let's go solve the Zodiac now. It's, that didn't right. happen. You know, I went on a journey to be, you know, I wanted to be a ball player and I really sucked at baseball and I wanted to be a, a rock star and I was moderately okay at that, but I still was not very good. And then, <laughs> you know, it was always writing that was pulling me back in and this true crime stuff. And then I got really into as as like an 11 or 12 year old, I got really into the Kennedy assassination. And that's when I started learning about forensics and, and uh, spatter and all that kind of thing. And then, cool. you know, yeah. it just, it just evolved from there. And then eventually it was just like, I don't want to do solved cases. I want to do unsolved cases. And that's how, how we're here. And and it's so interesting to me that there's there's so much writing about crime, and then also I think you mentioned in the book that there's sort of a set of the same five murders that the media will fixate on, such as Kennedy probably yeah. and uh, Manson. I don't know what the couple other ones would be. No, there there yeah. is the greatest hits, and what it is is it's yeah. it's OJ, OJ uh, of course, it, yeah. it's John Bonet, it's Manson, it's Bundy, and then th those would would probably be the big four. And then, yeah, you've got the Kennedy assassination. Uh, I'm definitely in agreement that I solved the case. And it was it was Oswald, unfortunately. You know, people just don't want to admit that, that's, that, that this schmuck was able to kill the, the most powerful man in the Western world. But it happened. And that's the way it happened. And, uh, you know, I'm very much an Occam's Razor guy when it comes to things. It's, it's not so much the simplest explanation is the best one. It's the explanation that you have to make as little assumptions as possible to get to. And that's the one that, that makes the most sense. I think I had sort of the opposite of your son of Sam experience with the John Bonet case because mm -hmm. I would just see it on magazines at checkout stands with my parents, and I would wonder how it was on the checkout stand every week we went to the yeah. store. Like I was, I was like, how is this one crime the entire thing that's only ever focused on when there are crimes all the time of all sorts? There are crimes. Like, why all are the we time. only talking about the? There one? are five thousand murders unsolved every year. Why are we talking about this one over and over and over again? And then, and that leads into there's a, a whole set of amazing stats in the book too. As you mentioned, there are uh, 5,000 annual unsolved murders in the U.S. There's also just an overall low clearance rate in the United States, it turns out. Yes. Um, I think it's the about stat six, here- 62%. Might, yeah. might be down to 61% after this year. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. You That's compared to in 1960, it was 90%. Yeah. So there are a lot more guns and there's drugs. Those are two biggies. There's a real lack of faith in the police department. That's a biggie. Yeah. People always don't want to don't want to tell the police anything. There's also people move around a lot more than they did back then. People don't really know their neighbors. They don't really know what's going on. They don't really, everybody really wants to just, you know, keep to themselves. 
our clearance rates are really low. If you were to tell people, you know, ask anybody on the street, is it easier to get away with murder back then or now? Everybody would say, oh, it's got to be back then. They didn't have DNA back then and they didn't have all this other stuff. But it's a lack of resources. It's a lack of people cooperating with the police. And it's a hell of a lot of guns. And that's what's going on. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think citizens are important to help the police with this kind of thing. You know, and the, the yeah. idea of of the criminal justice system using ordinary citizens is not new. Our entire justice system is based on that. That's what the jury system is. You're, in fact, if you know too much, you're off the jury. I've been called, but I'm I'm always out oh. in the first thing because I'm like <laughs> I don't even tell I don't even put down crime journalists. I just put down journalists, and and yeah. they're using no, there's no, there's no way, you know. They want people that know as you know, sort of as little as possible, little as possible about the case or, or this or that that they're going to be able to shape and mold for whatever case that they're doing. The idea of this professional detective is is fairly new. There wasn't professional detectives 200, 300 years ago. There was, if somebody died, you'd go get the doctor, you'd go get the judge, you'd go get the lawyer, you'd go get you know the smart guy in the, in the community. There were no really police departments either. The police departments were really formed in America to to control mobs and, and things like that, you know? Yeah, so like crowd suppression. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the idea that this is, um, oh, this is citizens shouldn't be doing that. No, you know, we're just, we're just turning it back around and saying, you know what, we can help. And there's a lot of people that want to help and we should open it up. We were talking a little bit before about why there are reasons that the U.S. clearance rate is low mm -hmm. for, for these murders and things, but it's also much higher in other countries. The book says that it's 95% homicide clearance rate in Japan, 88 to 94 in Germany, 85 in England and Wales, 75 in Canada, which is still higher than our, our 62 or 1. Mm -hmm. Is it just that size and then these other social factors it's, that's, it's, that's uh, driving it? A lot of that is guns. Yeah, I'll tell you right now. Guns. A lot of that is guns. Yeah, yeah. you look at the, the gun laws in, in, in Japan and in the UK and everything. And a lot of it is manpower. So when, when you when you take away the guns from the equation, and I'm not like for or against the Second Amendment, I think everybody has the right to to arm themselves to a degree. But I think that when you take that away and you take away the number of crimes that are happening, if somebody's murdered in Britain, they put a lot of detectives on that because it's a big deal. If you're murdered in mm. Amsterdam, that's a big deal. And they put a lot of detectives on it. And here it's like you get two detectives. And then another one comes, another murder gets put on the desk. And the, the, the folder doesn't go in the drawer, but it goes a little bit to, to the side because they got to work on this next one, you know? And that's what happens. And then another one comes and it gets pushed over a little bit and pushed over a little bit. And then the year ends. It's like, all right, we didn't get that one. Then it goes into a file or a folder, yeah. you know, or a desk drawer or something like that. It gets filed away. And that's that's when it becomes cold is when it's off their desk. The U.S. thing, it sounds like what I see in U.S. crime shows. Like, is that is that somewhat realistic that it's just a, a pair of detectives or or one part of one force has to deal with the whole thing on their own? It pretty much is, yeah. yeah. It's not like, I mean, you, you might see that if you watch the procedurals over in England and you see like they have a murder and they have everybody like working on it. Like sometimes yeah. you see that, like you see this, like, all right, this person, we're, we're all going to go and get it. It's like, that, that, that really doesn't happen here. You know, these guys, these detectives, they're overworked and they, there's not enough of them. If you ask anybody why you didn't solve this case, they're going to say two things. They're going to say, we don't have the resources to solve all of them. And we don't have the cooperation from witnesses and things like that. And sometimes they huh. do know who it is. Uh, they just don't have the evidence to make the case. And a lot of that is based on, whether your DA is willing to, you know, take on the case with with as much evidence as possible. I mean, you see that a lot with if if somebody goes missing and you know that the husband did it, 
uh, but there's no body, whether you're, you're able to, you know, grab the husband. And a lot of times that's the DA saying, yeah, I can make it work, you know, versus a DA that says, no, I want, I want the body or I want more evidence or something. Yeah. So yeah, it's just situation to situation. situation. Listen, we've got 19,000 different law enforcement agencies across this country and they really? don't, they don't talk to each other. It's oh, gotten, boy. it's gotten better, <laughs> but you know, the difference between say, you know, the unidentified remains, which there's like 40 to 60,000 unidentified remains in pauper's graves or in storage lockers right now. And there's 80 to a hundred thousand missing persons, right? They, there's no database that talk that for those two things to talk to each other. There's a thing called NamUs, but it is for most states, it's voluntary to enter the stuff into NamUs. I did oh. a story once where this woman had a son, an adult son who went missing in Los Angeles. Every year she'd put up flyers for him and was looking for him, constantly looking for him. And it turns out they had actually found him six months after he went missing about a mile away from her house. And they didn't have the wherewithal, they didn't have the systems in place and the protocols in place to realize that that's the guy. Now think about that if he was in another state or in another county or, or whatever. It's such a huge gap in the system that that needs to be fixed. It sounds like almost too much to call it a system. It sounds like it's kind of thrown together. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, writing was such a draw. So you're writing about these cases, and then you're continuing to be a, a writer and communicator about them, but also investigating them. And then you also put investigation into things like the identity of a, a character in Star Wars. It seems like it's all sort of the same skill set for each thing. It really know? was. Yeah. You know, with the character in Star Wars who is named Boshek. And I always love this character because he's the character that when Obi-Wan and Luke go into the cantina, they're looking for a pilot. And they go to this one guy and yeah. he's wearing a spacesuit, and he's got these great mutton chop sideburns, and he doesn't say anything, but it looks like he's saying, no, not me, but you might want to look over my shoulder. This guy might help. The guy over his shoulder is Chewbacca. He walks away from the bar. Chewbacca leads them to Han Solo. That's how it starts. Yeah. What was this guy doing that he said no? <laughs> and, you know, this guy could have been the Han Solo. You know, he could have been the, one of the heroes of it. And I always was fascinated by that character, is that, like, what else did he have to do? And I was at the Star Wars celebration with my daughter, and I had just gotten into working on, you know, I've always been working on Unsolved Mysteries and things, but I was at this cantina-ology presentation, and the guy was like, yeah, we, we identified this actor and this actor, we still don't know who this guy is. And I looked at him, and I was like, Star Wars is the most analyzed movie of every, you can't yeah. name a more analyzed movie in terms of like <laughs> the little minutia. And we don't know one of the one of the guys who has an action figure of, of himself. There's an action figure of Boshek. We still don't know who played him. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> I turned to my daughter and I said, I'm going to find out who he is. And she's like, yeah, right. And I said, yeah, I'm going to. So it took six months. Actually, it was more like nine months, but I found him. You know, he was an actor. He was there one day. Yeah. And he also played a stormtrooper too at, uh, at one point. You know, I found him through a whole bunch of different means, and it was just, that was really kind of my first solve. And when you would do, do a Google search for me, even though I've written hundreds of true crime stories, the first thing that would pop up is me finding Boshek. Because, yeah, like, this delightful thing. It was just, oh, a guy was in a movie. Yeah, a guy that was in a movie, Star Wars, hey, this is funny. <laughs> Star, you know, it's just like, and like, that's io9 and all these places are writing about it. And um, that was, you know, forget about the all the other cases that I've that I've covered and the unsolved murders that I've tried to write about. And that's, you know, really the book, if you had a logline for the book, it's I was a guy that wrote 
stories with no endings for 17 years. I only wrote about unsolved murders. Yeah. And I got so fed up that I came up with an idea and a system on how to solve them myself. And then that's the second part of the book and how it, how it goes from like, there's a regular guy that's actually solving murders. Yeah. I also, I love the Boshek thing as sort of a sample of the the painstaking finding information that can go into mm-hmm. the solving because he didn't die. But to figure out who he is, you, you dug through all sorts of internet sources about who he was and then found out that that actor was in an episode of a British show called The New Avengers yes. where he was like a Russian goon in the big furry hat. And so then you were posting on forums for both Star Wars yeah. and this show and then also just e- cold emailing all the different family members of all the potential people. And, and <laughs> it was strange. Digging yeah. and digging and digging and then you just get sent a picture of him from a relative with yeah. like a, a picture of him in the 70s as proof. It's great. And it was, it was a, a <laughs> glorious picture and that was sort of like almost like my first solve really. We'll have linked to because uh, on your website, you've got the whole Boshek story, and it is this one shot of, to me, he looks like Howard Cosell. I know it's not that person, but it's, it's mm-hmm. that kind of guy just in the bar. Yeah. And they they he briefly sends them on their way. And I, I love that you were so interested in, what if he just said yes? Like, yeah, that, that he could have been the guy. You know, it's just like all the stuff, that, all the posters that I had on my wall of Han Solo, they could have been Boshek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, and we also have some of these similar investigative techniques being put toward murders and, and yeah. crimes. And, and there was an interesting thing where early in your career, you were working on just reporting various crimes that happened. And you were dealing with one where it was a crime that had just happened and they sent you to the family. Yeah, And it's an, an amazing story because you realize like, oh, I think this guides my intention from here. You're talking about the one in the hospital? Yeah, the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, I had been stringing, and stringing back then was that you would go, they would call you up and say, hey, one of them was like a a monkey was was stolen from a pet store, you know, on a Saturday. And then I would (laughs) would go to this pet store on Long Island, do all the research for it, and then call it into the rewrite desk. The rewrite desk would write it. You wouldn't even know I was there. You know, I just got all the information. I got all the quotes. I did everything, but then a rewrite guy would write it. So I was doing that uh, for the New York Times, and it was going really well. And then I, I got a job at the New York Post doing that. And it, like, the New York Post, that's the you know, headless body and topless bar. That is the, you know, you're talking about crime <laughs> and crime in New York, and that's it. Headless body and topless, topless bar. bar. So it's uh, one yeah. of the most famous crime headlines ever. Yeah. I went and, you know, I start doing the, the story, and they want me to interview the family. And what had happened was is that a pair of girls – and they were they were they were, they were teenage uh, girls in high school. They had tried to go around a railroad crossing, and they got hit by the train. So they were at Stony Brook University Hospital. I went there, and they said, "Try to get the family to talk." And I go in, and I ask the family, I was "Like, I'm so sorry. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about your daughter and everything like that?" And the guy looks up at me with just such like this devastated look, and I was just like, "Okay, this ain't happening." Call back rewrite uh, the post, and they're just like, "Try again." Okay, so <laughs> I go, and I'm walk. I remember walking around the hospital. And uh, I'm doing this on a payphone too, because I couldn't have the cell phone on. And I go back in, and then I ask again, and then he just doesn't even answer me. He just looks at me, and I was just like, "I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore." So, and this was this was the kicker. I called up the post, and the, I said, uh, "You know, he." I ask again, and then the guy said, "You know what? It's okay. We just got the girl's rap sheet. It's a mile long. We're fine." So it wasn't a story. It wasn't two squeaky clean cheerleaders. It was, you know some students that might've had some issues. It's not that big of a story now. And I said, this is, this is the most shameful 40 bucks I think I made ever. 
and I'm not doing this anymore. So I was I was on a path yeah. to be the crime beat reporter that's going to go to the scene and do all that stuff. And I just completely walked away from that path of that curve. It was just like, nope, I'm going this way. And it was a big moment for me. But then it was like, I just want to do Unsolved. And when you write about Unsolved cases, you just don't, you're not, you know, I thought I was going to be able to solve some of them, but, you know, I, was, I wasn't. And eventually, yeah. you know, I came up with an idea and was, a, you know, a sort of aha moment two years ago or three years ago now and sent me on this other path now, which is, you know, I'm more investigating now and uh, working with police departments and acting as a consulting detective with them. As you said, following all these unsolved cases, you said, what can we do to work them out? And there are things that really, really help with it, such as social media. Yeah. Who knew? We all think social media is so bad. And then it's useful here. So my friend, Michelle McNamara, she written a book. She was writing a book about Golden State Killer. She passed away. And myself and her researcher, Paul Hans, and her husband, Patton Oswald, we, we finished it. But right after she had passed, you know, I was just, I really was feeling you know, pretty down and, and devastated, not only for losing a friend, but also for like the killer wins. You know, she's, she yeah. works so much on this case. It was the only case. I, I very rarely work on one single case. I always want a lot of irons in the fire because you get, you hit so many brick walls. If I'm just working on one case, you can really, it can really hurt you, you know, uh, when you run into brick walls. Yeah. So I'm at home and what I, what do I do? You know, I can't sleep. It's two o'clock in the morning. I'm watching a video of an unsolved murders. You know, that's what I do. That's what I, what you search for as you do. And I see this video of this guy getting attacked on the street and it's four months old and they still don't know who he is. And I'm looking, I'm reading everything about it. They still haven't found this guy. I was like, why can't they find this guy? And then it, something just clicked. And it was like, I know why. It's the reason why I don't write for newspapers anymore. It's the reason why, you know, TV news is in the tank. Nobody's watching local stuff. And this was a national story too. It was like, I don't need to hit anybody nationally. I need to hit just the people on that block and see if they recognize who this person is who, who attacked him. And then yeah. it just, that all clicked. And I said, this is my job that I do during the day. I try to get people to click on on stuff, much like Cracked was, you know, it's like getting people to click on on, <laughs> oh, on all stories. Websites. Yeah. All, all yeah. websites really do that, but Cracked <laughs> was particularly adept at that. And um, so I came up, you know, I just was kind of fumbling in the dark, uh, literally, because it was the dark. And I came up with this idea and I started utilizing social media just for that specific case, starting page pages just for that specific case, and also starting buying geo-targeted ads, just targeting that block. You can't really do a block, you can only do a mile radius, but targeting that people and trying to target everybody who might recognize that guy. Through a, a series of, of events, I got, somebody sent me a video that, that, that had been taken right after the man was attacked, right before he died, because he, he was attacked. He landed in the crosswalk his attacker yelled at everybody to go away and his attacker was a big guy. And then unfortunately a cab rolled over the man and killed him. And they sent me a video of the attacker. And I was like, this guy was there. And it was amazing. It was like, oh my God, this, this, this works. Yeah. And we eventually, through me begging the police department, this is the guy, this is where he is. He's not in Chicago anymore. He's in Minnesota, all that. Finally got an arrest um, after six months. And you know that sort of set the ball rolling. And it was my first case. It was the first one that I solved. And then there has been mixed results since, but you know, there's, <laughs> it was definitely, there was some beginner's luck in there. I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but there was some beginner's luck. And then it's a matter of now just trying to take as, as many cases as I can and can afford and have the bandwidth for. And, uh, you know, there's families that come to me and there's also police that come to me. Cause once the police see that it works, they're into it. They just don't right. have the budget for it. And I do them. I just put the money in just because I 
I do it. You know, I don't ask for because in the rewards not for me. The reward is for the tipster, whoever's going to be able to say, you know, I know that guy, and then they give them the reward. So when the and because the money going in is to promote posts on especially Facebook, it seems like and Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And this uh, this first case, it was in Chicago. Was this the the man in the green hoodie? That's the man in the green hoodie case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so you you had the initial video of that, and then managed to through social media and and drafting posts and promoting them exactly the right way, get another video of him, and yeah. then from there identify through more posting. Hey, here's this other video. Does anybody know? Well, actually, what I did with that one, I had the video, but the video was so good because it was a clear front facing. The other oh. ones are from the top. Yeah. So you can see, you could tell his hairline and he had a very distinctive hairline. He had a widow's peak. So it's like, that's what I was going to do. And then luckily Cook County puts all of their mugshots online and I just went through all the mugshots. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. then yeah. then I identified, found everybody that had, you know, the widow's peak and narrowed it down to three guys. And then I eventually went to Chicago and asked around and showed the guy's picture. And then I got somebody matched up and said, yeah, that's big dummy, real name Marcus. And that was what the guy's name was, Marcus Moore. And then I had it. It seems like a lot of this is aided by relatively new technology. I mean, I mean, Facebook yeah. rolls out in a big way around 2006 and we all have cameras on our phones now. And, and it seems like you've found the the best use of all these things. Yeah, I mean, I just, wish, I just wish I found it in 2010 when Facebook was really humming. You know, you see a lot of young, um, young people going away from Facebook now and it's like, uh, but they're using Instagram. So, yeah. you know, Instagram is different because you can't share, but it's the same, it's the same advertising engine. So I'm using that now as well. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are the three biggies. And then also I go in, if, I, if I'm trying to identify somebody's sneakers that yeah. is running away, you know, I'll go into Reddit and I'll go to the sneaker heads in Reddit and I'll ask the mods, hey, I've got this murder case. Can I just try to see? And they, they'll say yes. And then I put it up there. And then a lot of times, listen, the video's not always great. <laughs> and I mean, there was one funny line. Whenever you post, there's always people saying, can't you get a better video? It's like, no, if I had a better video, right. I would show you a better video. Okay. <laughs> if I had a better sketch, right. I'd show you a better sketch. Why, why did you fuzz out the video yeah, before yeah, yeah. you showed it to me? That was <laughs> yeah, a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one guy said like, yeah, it was, it was kind of pixelated. And I was like, does anybody recognize these sneakers? And one guy said, yeah, they're JPEG 12s. And I said, all right, that was <laughs> that's funny. That's, if you're going to troll me, just be funny. But uh, and that seems like another relatively new tool that, that's been very useful, too, is these specific online yeah. subgroups. Well, it, it's been incredibly good that's for awesome. cars. A cop will show me a car. It's like, we're trying to identify this car. I can take it to Reddit, and I have it in five minutes. Yeah, because and it's just from like <laughs> the angle of the bumper and the what the light is and the, like the tail light in the bumper, and they're saying this is what that is. I mean, I've identified oh, this is the BMW with the sport package from eighty five. Like everything, these guys really know their stuff, and that's the so it's the same thing that they would go if they knew it was a BMW, they'd go to every BMW dealership back in the day. Now you can just do it on Reddit, and then they'll tell you, and then you have yeah. to confirm it. Then you get a picture of it, and you say, "Yep, that's the same car." You know. That's it, that's it. That's one of the great things. When, when we talk about crowdsourcing, it's not like everybody getting together and trying to solve the Zodiac case or something. It's everybody has has something that they really, really know about and, and yeah, that, that they're yeah. really super passionate about. Like what would be what would be your thing? Like what, what would be the thing that like oh, be, if I had something from a case and I was like, I got to go in and, and show it to you, what would it be? You know, I, I used to be a zoo tour guide. I don't know if that helps because animal crime is strange, but uh, you know yeah. what though, <laughs> we had the P twenty two mountain lion killing the. Uh, the they, remember they thought yeah. he killed the koala bear. Oh, and, that was and, so upsetting, <laughs> but it wasn't him. <laughs> it was like all my fears in a news story, like everyone being mad at two animals. Oh boy. <laughs>
But it turns out it wasn't him. It was like, yeah, so. Knew it. I knew it the whole way. Yeah. There's a lot you say in the book about ways that people can uh, contribute to or actively do this kind of investigating. And then there are also very key rules uh, to keep them Mm -hmm. safe and make sure they're okay. I I feel like often with crime investigation, there can be kind of a glorification of how much danger the person was in. Yeah. And I feel you do a very good job of encouraging people to not be in danger. Don't do that. No, you're you're not a vigilante. (laughs) You, You know, the first thing is, you're usually going to be doing a sitting at your computer. You don't put out names or people's pictures out on the internet thinking that this is the guy. Yeah. You don't do that. That was the problem that happened in Boston bombing. It's happening in the uh, the Delphi murders right now, uh, the two little girls that were killed um, near the bridge in Delphi, Indiana. Oh. Uh, you see people, because one of them had the wherewithal to take a picture of the, of the guy, take a video, actually, of him while he was coming towards him. People are doing what they call side-by-sides. They're taking a picture of somebody that they're seeing on the internet and saying, oh. hey, is this the guy? It's like, don't do that. The other thing is, you know, don't take information that you get and take it straight to the family. Uh, you should be working with the police and funneling it through the police. And information is always going to be a one-way street. You know, it is with me even for a lot of the times. I mean, there's a few, probably about half the cases that I've really worked and dug into that they've we've traded information back and forth, but some of them just don't want to hear it from me and just like, listen, send me the stuff, fine, but we're not going to tell you anything, which is totally fine. That's that's their prerogative. Yeah, because uh, it seems worth making sure people realize that like when you were talking about the man in the green hoodie with the murder in Chicago, as soon as you locked all that information down, you um, you then brought it to the police. Mm-hmm. Like that oh, that yeah, was, yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the final step. Not no, no, no. I, the final I, step I put is on I'm my Batman there. outfit. Yeah. And I, <laughs> no, and everybody's like, well, yeah. you know, you're not Batman. I tell tell people that. It's just like, and then it's like, but I want to be Batman. I was like, listen, I want to be Batman. Yeah, everybody wants to be great. Batman except maybe Batman because he's got a lot of tragedy in his life. <laughs> but you can't be the Batman of Christian Bale or Kevin Conroy or God forbid, George Clooney, you have to be the Adam West Batman. You have to be the Adam. There's a great part in the 1966 Batman series where they're going to chase uh, somebody into a bar and it's Batman and Robin. And then Batman turns around and says, you have to stay out here because it's a bar (laughs) and you're not allowed here. It's like he's following the rules to a T. And and I always like that. We are still in the thick of summer, and summer is prime ice cream season. And that's why this show is supported by the best type of ice cream there is. It's called Ben & Jerry's. Heard of it? Of course you have. You eat things, and you know. I want to give you a very, very specific Ben & Jerry's tip if you live in Texas. Oh, what a large state. So many of you. Great. They have a flavor that is Texas only. It's called bourbon pecan pie. It's buttery bourbon ice cream with pecans, shortbread cookie pieces, and a whiskey caramel swirl. Now, hang on. There were two fun alcohols in there. Uh, There were also uh, uh, cookies and caramel and a a buttery kind of ice cream as well. Yeah, that's a lot of pieces all coming together in only the state of Texas. Ben & Jerry's is all about uh, a lot of local sourcing of ingredients, also a lot of specific causes and efforts that are worth supporting. And also, it sometimes comes down to some just great regional flavors, and I think that's very exciting. Of course, if you are in the whole rest of the United States or elsewhere, I recommend chocolate chip cookie dough to everyone I can. Ben & Jerry's had a hand in the creation of that flavor in the first place, which is just good work for, uh, for society, I think. And it's my favorite to chow down on when I am not in the state of Texas, where I go occasionally. Wherever you might be, set yourself up with the best ice cream there is, Ben & Jerry's. You can treat yourself to your favorite flavor anywhere ice cream is sold, or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That is B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y dot com.
One more time to repeat something from the top of the show. We are doing a live episode of this podcast in London. It's at the London Podcast Festival, Sunday, 8th September at 7 p.m. So that that's coming up uh, soon, you know, early autumn. Uh, we will be in the UK for the first time. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Tickets are at bit.ly slash cracked London or follow the food note to those tickets and set yourself up for a show I could not be more excited about. See you there, Britain. A lot of times when I call the police department and say, this is what I do, I'm going to set up a, a Facebook page specifically for this crime. Oh, we have a Facebook page. It's got 50,000 followers. It's like, first of all, all right, you have 50,000 followers. If you put a post up, 3% of those followers are going to see it. That's how Facebook works. You know, right. That's that's it. We know that. All but sites they don't have learned this. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> they haven't. And these are, remember, it, it, a lot of these police departments weren't even able to get online 10 years ago. You know, I had heard one story about a police department that had actually taken away social media because like people were using it too much. It's like, no, this is like, oh, social media, man. particularly Facebook, especially when Facebook was humming, if you had somebody get murdered, you had their entire, pretty much their entire social circle right there. And you can see all of their friends and everything like that. I mean, it was yeah. just so much of the legwork was already done for you. And to have that taken away, it was just, it just boggles my mind. So, you, you know, then you say, oh, well, we had a press conference. And I try to explain to them that even if the, the local ABC affiliate had a million Facebook followers, how many people are going to see that? Maybe 50,000 of those. They're going to be all across the state probably, or maybe even the, you know, some of them are going to be in the country. I'm going to hit just the people that you want. I'm going to hit just the people in this zip code. And I'm also going to write it in a way that doesn't sound like a cop. The way that the police do, they always, they, they front load it with facts. They front load it with, he's five foot two and 160, all that stuff. And people glaze over that. This yeah. is what we're really doing is marketing and marketing is, is seduction and marketing is grabbing somebody's attention in the middle of you know, your uncle bitching about Trump and your your sister posting a picture of your new niece and some cat videos. And you're scrolling through and you need to grab people right away with a compelling image and a compelling story at the top, uh, no matter what it is. Yeah. And you can't lead with facts and things. Uh, you know, you, you have the facts at the bottom and I always put in the facts, but your lead, just like, you know, as writers we know, you got to grab them with that lead because there's so many other things to read out there, so many other things to watch, so many other games to play. You know, grabbing somebody's yeah. attention now is the hardest that it's ever been. I feel like even in the news when I've seen, like, they have some kind of thing of this is who we're looking for, police departments, it seems like it'll often be almost like a list of baseball statistics or something. Mm -hmm. It's just like five foot, although baseball statistics fascinate me, uh, but but they're like <laughs> five foot two hoodie, da, 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 da. On, then, yeah, on base and percentage. Then, and then, and your yeah. posts in the, in the book, they're all, you have this approach of, of drafting the copy in a way where it's, I shouldn't even call it copy. It's, it's just a, a, an imploring the person to help. Yeah. And just saying stuff like, please share. Or please, please share. I've done this double marketing. please. Yeah, it's right. marketing. Yeah, yeah exactly. For a good and cause. it works. And yeah. yeah, it's for a good cause. And I'm, I'm not. I've begged for shares before, <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll beg for shares again. And it's just like this is begging for shares for a good cause, and not only for you know murder investigations, but also for missing persons. And you see a lot of, you know, missing persons get get shared very easily because everybody yeah. wants to help and they feel like, oh, share, I helped, you know, but they're a lot tougher as well. And they're a lot tougher to work on too, because often you get so involved in the people's lives that are looking for them. And then 
too often it found you find out that they they passed you know and they were just one woman was found in a, in, in her truck in a in a ditch and they just couldn't find her like uh, it was just covered mm. by trees in um i think it was uh, southern illinois and that's the sort of stuff that hits you when it, when you when you hear that because you think you're close you think you've like oh i found a piece of video she might be over here she might be over there but if if she hasn't said anything in so long or if he hasn't said anything you know there's a lot of people that go missing all the time and a lot of them you know the suicide rate is 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 pretty big right now. You know, there's forty five thousand people kill themselves every year uh, compared to fifteen thousand murders. So, and then there's also seventy thousand overdoses. So when yeah. people go missing, it's it's not that somebody took them. Some a lot of times it is, or or, the, or they were murdered. America's a big place, and there's a lot of places that people can go missing, whether they want to do it on their own or, or they do it as an accident. Or those missing person cases are, are rough to do, but. You know, you got to do it. Well, and then, and then, as far as when the police receive this, often probably unasked for input of investigators uh, who are private people saying, "I've found this and that. Mm-hmm. Here you have this information." It seems from the book like sometimes they are very receptive to it, and sometimes they're like that trope in Sherlock or or a Sam Spade story or something where they're like, "What are you doing here again with yeah. helping me? <laughs> uh, all your irritating help can't stand it." It it very yes, it very much is like that until you until you help them with one until they get the collar, yeah. you know, and then they're like, <laughs> then they start sending me stuff like, "Can you find this guy?" And it's it's from twenty years ago, and we only have a sketch. Or sending me burglary stuff, you know, but I never want to say no, so I do it. But it's like, you know, once they see it works, then everybody tells each other in the building and then everybody talks to each other and then they start talk, calling me. It's kind of like in the way that like when Sherlock comes in there and be like, you know, what do you, yeah. Or, or yeah. Hollywood Land. Remember Hollywood Land? I didn't uh, see it. Oh, it was so great with uh, with Adrian Brody. He's a private detective and he's trying to, his thing is he's trying to get any cases that they won't touch. And that's how he starts taking on the uh, George Reeves case. Which is the guy oh. Superman who, you know, may may have been killed by uh, Eddie Mannix, who was the Hollywood fixer at the time. I'm not from LA, and, and I know you're not either. But but when I moved here, I was surprised to learn, oh, this is like maybe more murder lore than the average place, Los Angeles. Oh yeah, it's it's apparently all the murder lore is in either very remote woods or the heart of Los Angeles. No, it's just <laughs> I remember when I first got out here, and somebody had a dinner party, and it was on. Waverly. And I'm thinking, Waverly, why do I know Waverly? And it was three doors down from the LaBianca house, which was the, the second night of the um, the Charles Manson family murders. And I was just like, you would counter it all the time, whether it's you're going to the Biltmore Hotel downtown, which is the last place that Black Dahlia was seen. Part of it is because this is where the storytelling is done. We're the storytelling capital of the world. So if oh. somebody gets murdered here, you're going to hear about it a little bit more. And I, I guess off of famous, famous murders and things in, in California and, and in Southern California, the, the Golden State Killer uh, yes. is, is such a, a case that people know well. We, we mentioned it a, a little bit before, but uh, but you've you've played such a role and you were so close with Michelle McNamara and then also worked uh, with uh, others on finishing her book and, and uh, then the eventual process that they did to find him. The Golden State Killer case was something that I I inherited after Michelle had passed. And I knew about it, and I had read her story originally. And her story was so good that she wrote in LA Magazine, which led to the book deal, that I remember, it's one of those stories that I read it, and I said, fuck, I wish I wrote this. And it's like, whenever you, yeah, whenever you have a story like that, it's just like, that's a good story when you're really upset that you are the one that wrote it. And we eventually, you know, uh, got into a friendship. 
you know, it was two things. One, obviously, I wanted this book to come out because she had worked so hard on it. And she really, you talk about, we were talking before about how police departments weren't talking to each other, very much so in this case. And she had this great yeah. ability to bring, to, to get cops to not only talk to her, but to talk to each other. And she'd bring them all together and like at a dinner. And it's like, I'm paying for this dinner. I'm paying for the booze. Let's have at it. Let's do it. You know, which was great. I mean, she was so good at that. I hadn't known a ton about it, but it turns out that the uh, person who she coined the name Golden State Killer, which was smart because he had one name, the original Night Stalker in Southern California, and then he was the East Area Rapist in Northern California, yeah. where because he was doing uh, crimes with a similar MO in both places, yeah. and well, they just hadn't met. Yes, yeah. And, um, <laughs> the, and it was they were connected through DNA eventually, but they didn't think it was the same. Nobody put two and two together. You know, so East Area Rapist is not a good moniker, East of where, you know. Right. Original Night Stalker is almost comical. It's like in Spinal Tap. Remember, this is like, yeah, our name was the originals, and they changed name. Yeah. They changed their name back to the regulars. <laughs> we were going to be the new originals, but then we said, "What's the point?" So we became the Tensmen. <laughs> with with them, there was another Night Stalker, and he's but he's the original. Oh, the original Night Stalker. Okay, so right. she was, and when she was doing it, I was like, "Well, I didn't know her at the time, but I, I remember saying like, she's really going to rename him." And uh, Paul Holes even was like, you're really going to rename him? I don't think that's a good idea. But it was. It was a good idea because he needed branding, and she got that. And, you know, because people the branding say, man brings people in to it bring did, information. It, it, it and, did. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, did the book have anything to do with it? I was like, no, it wasn't the book. It was her death because she dies, and it's an international story because she was married to Patton. And people are introduced now to the Golden State Killer across the country. People knew him in LA. That was it. And then obviously up in up in uh, Sacramento. But you know when people are starting to look in Sacramento and you can't tell me people in power up there and also in Orange County and also in, um, in the Ventura area, they're not saying, wow, we still haven't solved this thing. There's this woman that was trying to solve it. Let's let's get on this. So two months later, you see a new reward. You see a new a press conference saying that we're re-upping efforts with the FBI and a new partnership and everything. So she pushed that ball forward more than they can, they'll ever admit, you know? And uh, yeah. it was, um, you know, and on top of that, she was an amazing writer. You know, I, I put that book up there and, you know, it really was, it's 99% her. It was us that was just uh, putting it in order and kind of filling in these little ligaments here and there. And then we wrote like a third part of it after she passed. Well, and the, and the podcast, I, I, there's so many approaches in there that I think are really positive and I'm, I'm sure you guys chose them very intentionally, but like like encouraging people to not just hear the story, but also have something they can provide to yeah. the investigating. Centering victims rather than killers seems yeah. like a really great thing. That also with naming killers, it seems like there's a balance to be found of finding a name that it makes the brand so interesting that people come help and then also not Glorifying not glorifying them. them. There's yeah. a meme that's going on right now that that says that. It's like, oh, you know, really? why why are we naming these people the Night Stalker? We should call him like the micro piece or micro penis maniac, I think. Oh, was yeah, one of them. And then somebody <laughs> and then one of them was like <laughs> dipshit killer Charlie or something. It was something like that. And um right. it's true. It, it's a it's a double-edged sword. This case was was different. It was special. And uh you you've listen, we've got serial killers right now that are very much active, particularly in the Midwest, in Chicago, in Cleveland, in Columbus. They're murdering sex workers, they're killing people on the the, the quote unquote margins of society. Nobody's really paying attention. There's a big opioid epidemic there. The resources are not necessarily there. They're not connecting the dots that some of the the murders are happening in different counties. And, and like we were talking about before, where nobody's really kind of cooperating with each other. 
what I wanted to be able to do is say, all right, well, we've been listening to true crime now for since, let's say, Serial. You know, we, there yeah. were true crime fans before, but Serial blew it up. And then you had Making a Murderer, then you had The Jinxed, and then you had all of the stuff that got into the zeitgeist. Yeah. And all right, you've got all this knowledge now. Let's put it to good use. And even if it's just you taking something and saying, you know what, I'm going to go search in newspapers.com to see if I can find a similar murder from that time period back in the day or something like that, just something like that, and then sending it to us. Or it's like, yeah, I've got a friend that that lives in that area. I'm going to send, you know, she's not on Facebook and she may have never even seen like this image of this guy. I'm going to send it to her and see. Or, you know, hell, printing out a picture of somebody that we're looking for and bringing it to the to Thanksgiving dinner, you know, where your, your, yeah. your aunt who used to live in Southern California might recognize this person, you know, that kind of thing. And um, it, can, it can work and it has been working. We've been getting a really good tip. So it's something that I've, I, I've seen the power of as a journalist covering it. And then I did it myself as I started solving the stuff. And then it was like, all right, now everybody, let, let's let's do this, follow the rules, but let's do this and let's show people that this true crime phenomenon that's happening, it's not just rubbernecking. It could actually do some do some good. One part in the book that I, it was a thing I had never quite thought of. You describe baby boomers as the most talented and educated retirees history has ever seen. Yeah. Which is true. It's true. Like, there's this enormous pool of people in a way we proportionally, I don't think, have had with our no, generation. We have not, and, uh, and they and, have. And they're out there. They have access to technology. They are, they are really educated. A lot of them went, you know, went to college. Went to college. You know, yeah. were ingesting a lot of media, and, and the media was available. It was available not just to the rich people. It was yeah. available to almost everybody. Uh, there's still a lot of a lot of. Um, injustices out there in terms of, you know, uh, who can get what in terms of uh, education. Sure. Let's utilize them. They want to be utilized too, you know, and let's, I mean, let, let's, we can do a whole podcast on how we really like to, in this country, throw away people that are old and just like, just go sit in a corner there right. and, and go die. The Springfield uh, Retirement Castle. The Springfield Retirement Castle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's a need here. You've been saying that we don't have enough people. Here's the people right here and they're, they're willing to help. Another, uh, another resource that, well, this one's more of a new technology thing, but it's these things that... I learned about because of news about the Golden State Killer solution, which is these public databases of DNA. Yes. There's also private ones run by companies like uh, 23andMe and Ancestry. But then there's also things like GED Match, which is a public database where people are just submitting their DNA results. And I, I guess part of the solve on the Golden State Killer was just matching whoever the culprits was DNA to people in the database. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was used GEDmatch. Now, here's what just happened with GEDmatch, though. A GED is a high school diploma. GED right? is a high school. Yeah, that's different. That. Yeah, that's, that's different. A, that's a dating site for people that have GED GED match. <laughs> GED match. So it's a, it's it's a whole different thing. But good luck. Oh, hey, I'm trying. You know? uh, <laughs> um, but uh, no, here's what just happened. Yes. Yeah, so so what it would be is. You would go and get your DNA done. You could spit in a tube at 23andMe. They send you the stuff back. Then you yeah. could take it one step further, take that information and put it, upload it on into 23andMe. There's ways that you can see it. You can do a, a search for it. You can find it online about how to do that. So a lot of people did that because they're just, they're, they were into it. You know, they wanted something that was open source. The terms of service did say, did say that you could use, this might be used in a violent crime investigation. 
So there was about 500 oh. or 600,000 in there. Like for 23 and me. For Jet Match. For, no, for oh. Match, not yeah. for 23 and me. They wanted, that was the most frustrating thing about working on that story and that case is that I knew the answer was behind a locked door. If they let us into 23 and me and let us put in his, his DNA, we'd find the answer in a week. They had, in both of those things, they probably wow. had 3 million at the time. You know, yeah. we would have found not third cousins, we would have found maybe even a first cousin. Um, you know, it just would have happened because they just have so many of them in there. And just based on his race and where he where he was from, Northern California, you know, which is where Twenty Three and Me started. It's just like there's a lot more people that did it back then. So it used to be that you know that's this is what they did, and they were solving a bunch. So the, the floodgates opened, and they solved about fifty of these. And then somebody screwed up and did something that wasn't a violent crime, but they had DNA for. And it still was. I think it would have escalated. The guy would have escalated at some point. But it turns out he was a kid. He was a minor. And they didn't know that, but it turns out it was a minor. Mm. So the people at JedMatch kind of freaked out and turned off and ma- basically said, you have to opt into it. They didn't tell everybody that. It's not like they sent an email to everybody. So it went from having 600,000, something like that, samples in there to like 15,000. It's growing back up. I mm. wish they would just turn it back on. But it was really unfortunate that they did that because it's it's hampered a lot of investigations. Uh, I'd implore them, if any of them are cracked listeners who know the guys that run Jedmatch, that turn it back on. We knew this day was going to come where something was going to be solved with familial DNA. You couldn't have gotten a better case than this case because uh, the Golden State Killer case, because who's going to want to be on this guy's side? I knew there was going to be think pieces about privacy. And I think privacy is very important for DNA, particularly the thing that scares me the most is the health stuff with insurance companies and and if they find your DNA and see that you're you've got the gene for this or that if that gets in the hands of health insurance companies your rates are going to go you know that's that's my biggest thing my biggest fear for that but for you know law enforcement using it you're not only catching a killer that potentially may have stopped you know in 85 86 you're catching people that are going to kill again you know, that are, that are out yeah, there right now killing. The detective on the Allenstown case, uh, right when it happened, he called me up. His name is Pete Headley. He's, he's great. He's like Sam Elliott, basically. And he, uh, he's got the big mustache. And he's like, <laughs> he calls me up and he's like, how bad is it? And I'm like, what do you mean? We just caught the Golden State Killer. What are you talking about? It's like, how bad's the backlash? And I'm like, you know what? There's going to be a little bit of a backlash about privacy and things. People are going to write their there are things here or there, but you know what? Who's going to really want to be on the side of you know protecting this guy? Uh, right. You yeah. know, so yeah, nobody wants um, to. I understand that there are pitfalls there, but you know, finding an active killer is going to outweigh any of those pitfalls. It seems like there should be some way to protect the privacy, like I get, or or else to just maintain the the exact same rules currently at twenty three and Me at Ancestry, and mm-hmm. then also just publicize the idea that people can volunteer their stuff if they want yeah to. yeah exactly yeah. and that's kind of that's what we do and we talk about that on the on the podcast as well just like go in there spit in the tube you know and uh and make sure that you take that extra step and, and put it in there so yeah um it'll it's just it slowed it down um it's it's unfortunate that they made that decision hopefully they'll they'll return it um but um Right now, it's just everybody that has the stuff in there has to go back in. But who's going to, you know, a lot of people put that put it in there, you know, years ago. You're not going to, even if you get an email, it's going to go into spam. Or it's, I mean, who knows what it's, you know, what the opt-in right. is going to look like, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, a lot of people just did, a lot of people are dead, you know, but that could still lead to, you know, that are not able to opt in. So it's just like, oh, yeah. yeah, it's a bummer. 
Yeah, I suppose it's it's sort of a new question. Like it's a new moral thing mm-hmm. we're balancing. We've just never had this much information about people in a private way to yeah. database. You yeah. know, yeah. like their entire genome is not a fingerprint or a, a phone number. Or yeah. Something. yeah, yeah, and I get it and I understand. But when you work with victims' families and you see the heartache that they're going through, and then knowing yeah. that that their killer could be out there, not only getting justice for for their loved one but also potential justice for the, the next victim who's who's going to be killed by this guy because this guy's not going to stop. And there's a way sure. to find him, and they're not letting us do it. Is there any like next technology or system or database that's kind of on the way that, that's going to be a next thing toward it? I know, I, I mean, this is old, but when I heard serial, I was astounded by all the cell phone tower pinging. I realized, oh, of course, as soon as we yeah. had cell phones, that was a whole new yeah. ballgame. Well, you don't even need cell phone towers anymore because most of the time Google is, is tracking your phone. So if you have your phone yeah. on there, then Google finding with the mapping technology, Google knows exactly where you are. The cell phone towers is good because it's it's universal. But yeah. if you have an iPhone and you're going from one place to another place, it's going to tell you exactly where you were. It's going to tell you as opposed to where you might be in the area, and it's going to tell you when you were there. I think that's probably the biggest thing that you're that you're going to see right now. And Google is going to be, you know, I'm sure they answer subpoenas all the time for 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 that information. Yeah. So you know, it used to be that you could catch people, and people have been caught before by like checking into restaurants and then committing a crime and stuff like that. And they were like in the area. Remember when you used to check into restaurants? Remember Foursquare? Wasn't that fun? Oh, man. <laughs> it's like what, the way that BTK got caught. So BTK, the bind, bind torture kill uh, That's killer from yeah. uh, Wichita, Kansas. Horrible, horrible, horrible killer. He got away with it. And then uh, he became an empty nester. His kids grew up. He had stopped. But then he, re- he remembered like, I-, I used to like fucking around with the cops. That was fun. So he starts doing it again. He's not killing anybody, but he's just messing with the cops and sending him letters and things. And he gets into a dialogue with the cops and he actually adds the cops, if I send you a floppy disk, will you be able to figure out it's me? And they're like, no, no, just send, send it over. <laughs> he sends over the <laughs> floppy disk and within the data, the floppy disk is where the um, the Microsoft Word document, I believe, I believe it was Microsoft Word, where it was uh, it was registered to a church. They just looked at the people who were in the church and saw and found him. And he actually <laughs> right. went, when he gets arrested, he's like, I said, you guys lied to me. <laughs> guess what shit bird that's what we do listen as the btk killer i would like a little decorum and some basic rules yeah yeah and then kind of looking uh, forward into this world where there's as much information as possible like you, you mentioned earlier that there are a lot of serial killers active especially in the midwest if yeah. people want to know know who those are so they can help or pass along information uh what can they do beyond listening to the podcast and, and reading the book you know, just do a, a bunch of uh, searches. You can also go on this, a site called the Murder Accountability Project, where you can yeah. see if there are any, like, kind of like murder clusters in your area. You can really lose a lot of time going through, and you can kind of narrow it down to, I want to see every white male, 20 to 30 years old, who was murdered by strangulation oh. within this time period in this state. You can narrow it down like that. Guy named Thomas Hargrove put it together, and it's a really interesting resource. And he's able to identify yeah. these kind of clusters that you that you you've seen out there. It sounds more advanced than all the police systems. Oh, right? it is. It pretty much is. Is yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least at least we have it. That's yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. 
folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Billy Jensen for making the time and sharing those stories. And oh, yeah, completing my understanding of Star Wars, the thing I thought I knew everything about. You know, what a what a range today. I love it. And in our food notes, you will find links to shop for and purchase Billy Jensen's excellent new book. Again, that title is Chase Darkness With Me, How One True Crime Writer Started Solving Murders. Also a link there to Billy and Paul Hole's podcast, Jensen and Hole's The Murder Squad, a link to Billy's full story of solving Moss Eisley Cantina patron Boshak's identity, and you'll find further sources on the Golden State Killer, the other cases we talked about today, and how everything from DNA databases to podcast fandom contributes to resolving them. We also have some tour dates here for Billy Jensen if you'd like to see him on his book tour, and there's a lot of special elements to it. For example, this podcast drops on Monday, August 19th. If you're anywhere near Tulsa, Oklahoma, you can go to Magic City Books and see Billy in conversation with Danny Boy O'Connor. Yes, Danny Boy O'Connor from the group House of Pain, uh, the, the musician. So he's there too. You get a whole bunch. I even cracked my voice a little bit on the word musician. I'm that excited. Also, Billy will be at the Barnes & Noble at Union Square in New York on August 20th, the very next day, amazing. Then he's at the Atlanta History Center August 21st, Interbang Books in Dallas, Texas, August 22nd, and more cities from there. We will have a link in the food notes to meet this uh, fantastic, gregarious crime writer and solver of crimes. I think that's great. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing of surprising utility to crime solving. And yeah, it doesn't make up for Facebook's role in, you know, toppling world governments. But, it you know, it takes the edge off, right? There's something, there's something good there. I'm glad about it. Also, I don't share around my Facebook profile. I actually keep that to myself. But my Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. When I sit down to binge watch my favorite TV show or catch the newest episode, it's always better with a pint of Ben and Jerry's. What am I watching lately? I'm pretty into Barry season two. You guys seen that stuff? He's an actor and he's a hitman and everything in between. Also, I think my enjoyment of Barry is enhanced by chocolate chip cookie dough. The uh, just classic best ice cream that is also cookies, so it's everything I want. Ben and Jerry's makes it the best because they are the best ice cream. So cozy up with your favorite flavor available anywhere ice cream is sold or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That is B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y dot com. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit earwolf.com. Earwolf.